Welcome to Concept to Creation, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs who share their business journey. We'll hear what motivated them to turn their dreams into a business. They'll share stories from the trenches of business, from raising capital, creating products or services, navigating regulations, hiring employees, and managing competition and growth. We'll discover their successes and failures, and they'll provide advice for budding entrepreneurs. Now, here's your host and fellow entrepreneur, Mike Conrad. Welcome back to the Concept to Creation podcast. My guest today is Bob Black. I first met Bob back in the late 1980s when he was selling German-built drag soldering machines made by Ziva. While Bob has been involved in several businesses, he is perhaps best known for his work with Juki, importing and selling component placement equipment. Bob has imported and sold equipment from Germany, Switzerland, Japan, and Italy. Bob shares his journey of entrepreneurship through several companies. Bob shares what he's learned working with international companies and even what he's taught them. And just in case anyone thinks owning your own business allows one to leisurely lounge around, he talks about all the years he spent 27 days a month traveling for his business. Here's my conversation with industry icon, Bob Black. Bob Black, welcome to Concept to Creation. Thank you for being my guest today. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's been a long time since we've seen each other face-to-face. Uh, we've done many trade show dinners together, and and I think you know for a long time we shared the same PR company. So um, Megan would put together a, a dinner, and, and we'd all be, you know, uh, commiserating uh either either telling each other how great the show was or saying we'll never do another show again or <laughs> whatever the case may be but it's been a long time and you are have been in this industry a very long time but before we get into that tell me about your background did you become an adult and step right into this industry did you do other things first or what what led you here what did you do before you became an icon in the electronic assembly equipment space well, uh, you know, I started out uh, wanting to be a doctor. My parents always had programmed that I was to be a, a doctor. You know, I took German in high school because that's the language of medicine. Uh, went to the University of California, Davis. Uh, after two years, I was so tired of chemistry and biochemistry and, and uh, uh, physiology and the rest of it that I changed my major to history and economics. And of course, my parents weren't pleased, but uh, I graduated with a with a bachelor's degree in in, uh, in history with a with a concentration in economics. And uh, after that, I went home, uh, looked for a job, decided I wanted to go back and get a master's degree uh, so I could uh, teach at a junior college. And uh, so I had to earn money to do that because my parents helped me in 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 college. I worked uh, summers to earn the money, and then they filled in the rest. But uh, So I went to work at a fast food restaurant, which doesn't exist anymore, called Red Barn. And I managed that for a year and saved $6,000 and went back to, was going to go back to Davis to, uh, to get uh, a master's degree in education. And uh, my father gave me the one probably good piece of advice that I ever listened to him on. He said, are you sure you'll be able to get a job once you graduate with this master's degree? Have you checked out the availability of positions? You know, you say you want to teach at a junior college. Uh, have you checked the, the, you know, how easy it is to get one of those positions? And I thought about it, and I said, yeah, that's probably a pretty good idea. So I uh, uh, looked around and it was very difficult to get a teaching position at a junior college. Uh, there were waiting lists of people uh, that wanted them. And a lot of them were substitute teaching in high schools and grade schools just to make ends meet because they couldn't get a position in, the, in, in a junior college. So that kind of changed my mind. And right then, kind of fate took a turn. And my friend Bob Bugarin, who I'd worked in, uh, in the uh, Exxon station in Los Gatos with uh, all during high school and summers during college, called me and said, I'm starting a company to sell tools and supplies to Silicon Valley, and I need somebody to help me. Will you come talk to me about it? And so I went down and talked to him, and uh, he was going to do all the outside sales work, and he wanted somebody to run the office 
and uh, do the inside sales. And uh, I said, well, I've never done any of that. And he said, well, you know, it's not so difficult. I'll, I'll help you out to, to learn. So I started working with him, and we built that business over nine years uh, to almost 100 people, offices in three states, uh, uh, Oregon, Washington, and, of course, Northern California. Uh, we were a distributor of about 60 or 70 different lines of tools and supplies, including solder and fluxes and, and everything. And then we got into capital equipment. And one of those companies that we uh, represented in capital equipment was a German company called Ziva. And they made drag soldering machines. I and, remember drag. I used to sell drag soldering machines uh, uh, way and, back and in the day. Way back in the day. And of course, every, in those days, soldering machines were either from Hollis or Electrovert. Uh, and they were all wave solder machines. And then uh, fate took a turn again, and the multi-layer board came on the scene. And the early wave solder machines didn't have much of a preheat zone. They had a little coil that would dry the flux, and they'd go into the wave and turn into a pretzel. Uh, the warpage was, was tremendous. Well, as you know, the drag soldering machine, the board went into the solder all at one time. And you could vary the dwell time that it sat in the solder before it came out. And it kept multi-layer boards flat. And we could not keep machines in stock. We sold 180 machines in a year and a half, all right? And uh, at a very good, I mean, not a distributor's commission. Uh, we, we had a pro profit margin of 60% uh, on these machines. We were importing them ourselves from Germany. And then uh, I was doing the, the demos and, and so forth. And then we hired people more people to do installation and training. And so we became, that, that really financed the growth of our company. Uh, we became a very successful company. We, at that time, we were about the same size as Comkyle, who was our main competitor. And, and uh, that's how I got into the capital equipment business. Because when, when we had a chance to sell Ziva, Bob Guerin came in my office with a bunch of literature and manuals and put it on my desk and said, you read German, don't you? And I said, well, yeah. And he said, well, this is all in German. You're responsible for this. So that's how I got really into the capital equipment side of things was uh, the fact that I spoke German. So after uh, some years in that business, uh, you know, we'd grown a lot. We had a lot of employees. Uh, I got really tired um, of, the, of the business. And Bob and I were... Well, I wouldn't say we weren't fighting, but there was friction. Uh, and so being the junior partner, I had 30% of the company. He had 70%. Um, you know, I wrote a, a plan to run the company without me and went into his office and said, I've got a plan here to reorganize the company. He says, why would I want to reorganize my company? I said, because the last phase is my resignation. And uh, I said, read it, and then I'll be in my office. So, uh yeah, at that point, I called up Rudy Warner, who was the president of Ziva in Germany, and I said, uh, I'm leaving RGB. And he goes, where are you going? And I said, well, it depends on you. Uh, you can't keep flying people over here uh, um, and uh, working on things. You need, uh, you need to have a company here, and I'm willing to help you start that company. But if you're not interested, just tell me, and I'll find something else. Now, before we go yeah. there, before we go there, yeah. this is getting very interesting. I just want to go back a little bit. Um, when you're the thing about being a distributor it, in a classic sense, and there are exceptions to this is someone else builds it, you buy it and you sell it, right? You yes. own that inventory. Traditionally, you own that inventory. Um, you do call it a flooring cost or whatever, but you own that. Um, those machines probably by today's standards would seem pretty inexpensive, but back then those machines weren't cheap. Your markup was 60%. Um, so how did you finance you know, starting a business from scratch, um, you know, going from gas stations and restaurants to, you know, legitimate, well, th not that those aren't legitimate, but legitimately your own business. How did you come up with the funding to buy one machine, 10 machines, uh, pay the freight, well, do that, all that? That's where the economics came in. Uh, you know, you always eventually can use your, your education. And uh, we made enough profit on the volume of soldering machines to pay for the inventory growth 
in the distributor commodity uh, products. And plus, I got extended terms by, you know, we were selling so much that the Germans gave us, you know, 90 or 120 days to pay rather than just 30. So that we had a chance to get the machines over, it took, took about 30 days on the water, get them into stock and ship them out. And of course, we were giving the customer 30-day terms. So uh, we, we, we could manage the cash flow that way. And we grew so fast that we basically bootstrapped the whole thing. And by the time we'd gotten that large, uh, then we could get a line of credit with the bank because, uh, you know, when you're small, the bank doesn't want to know you. Right. Once you can uh, prove so you don't... Successful. Once you can prove you don't need the money, they're they're handing yeah. it out, right? Exactly. So that's that's actually I wouldn't recommend that as a model to build a company, but we had an extraordinary set of circumstances. We had the only soldering machine that would keep boards flat, because it took uh, Hollis and Electivert about two years to figure out how to run multi-layer boards successfully on wave solder machines. And in that time, we sold you know to tremendous volume of machines at an average price of probably 70,000 each. And the profit on those were about 35,000 each uh, or 40. And that gave us more than enough money to run the company and to pay for the growth. Yeah, I think your effort in bringing in uh, the Ziva drag solder machines and kind of bringing drag solder machines into the common vernacular, because um, they were always a very fringy machine, a fringy technology. And then uh, as you said, uh, multi-level boards and lead tinning all made drag soldering machines a little bit more attractive for, for, for uh, logistical, uh, geography kind of reasons. Um, I think your effort and your success in that industry is what caused my former employer to get into business. You know, I used to work for a company called Unit Design, and they yeah. they built their own drag soldering machine and got some patents and things like that. But But I think they were chasing your model only they got in a little too late and they got in as surface mount was making its way onto the scene. And, and yeah, we had a very successful run for about 10 years, uh, nine and a half to be precise. And, and then surface mount came and the, and of course you need a, you need a vibratory wave or a, or a rough wave followed by a smooth wave to solder bottom glued surface mount parts. And the drag solder machine couldn't do that. The shadowing as you went through the solder and pulled it out sure. meant that the back half of the components weren't soldered. So that was kind of the end of drag soldering uh, uh, as technology moved along. But before the end came, which ultimately pretty much every equipment type in our industry will see an end at some point uh, as one thing ends and something else comes in to take its place, um, there are still some disruptive forces left in our industry. And surface mount was certainly a disruptive force for through-hole. Uh, but before that, you, uh, when there was still life left in through-hole, you exited the, the relationship with your now former business partner and went to the Germans and made a pitch to, um, to acquire that line. Is that correct? Yeah, and the reason I did that is that Ziva, of course, had grown – to be a very successful company in Germany uh, with the with the manufacture of the drag soldering machines. But Rudy Wanner, who was president of, of Ziva, uh, was also a very forward-thinking man. And he would go every year to the head guys at Bosch, to the head guys at Mercedes, to the head guys at BMW, and say, what's coming next? What do you need? What can we do for you? And he would invest a lot of time into doing that. So, you know, two years before I... Uh, uh, left RGB, he had formed a new company called Zivatech by merging with a company called Montech in Switzerland. And Montech's business was they made robotic assembly machines to assemble Swiss watches. And so they were very used to picking up small parts and orienting them accurately and putting them uh, in an assembly. And Rudy saw that and uh, he'd heard from Bosch that everything was going to go surface mount within five years. And so uh, he made a joint venture with that company, uh, took the Ziva from Ziva and the tech from Montech, and that's where Ziva Tech started and started in Switzerland and started to build one of the first Western-built placement machines. And so that was one of the influences why I called him and said, we need to start a company here, because by that time I'd sold the first two 
surface mount machines in California uh, through RGB as, as the distributor. And uh, I knew that was a coming technology. So that was one of the things that motivated me to call him. And of course, with a, with a surface mount machine, you need a lot more technical support than you do in a solder, in a, in a drag solder machine. Surface mount machine, you need, uh, you need to have on-site techs that can respond instantly if there's a problem. Solder machine, you know, things are pretty easy to fix. Yeah, yeah, you can certainly see the parts <laughs> versus some of the new yeah. machines where the, you know, like pick and place machines, for example, I have no idea how they can pick up a part that one cannot even see. If you drop a component, it, it ends up in the soles of your shoe. You know, you'll never find it. Yeah. Um, how do you go about, how did you go about convincing, what argument did you make to um, your, your business contacts in Germany at Ziva to, well, to go with you? Uh, well, uh, Warner knew. Uh, I mean, I told you that uh, I called him and said, I'm leaving RGB, and he right. got very excited. And he said, where are you going? I said, it depends on you. I've got a list. You're the first on the list. Uh, if you're interested in starting a company over here and, and, and growing it, then I'm willing to do that with you. So did and you have to convince not, them? Did you have to convince them that the, the success that they had under the former company with you and your business partner you know, people don't like to knock success. If if things are going well, you know, if it ain't broke, uh, oh, we fix weren't it. Going, we, weren't, we weren't going to get rid of RGB. They were still going to be the uh, rep in California, the okay. distributor in California. We were just going to start a, a, a company to stock parts, have service technicians, okay. and be able to service the customers in the United States to the level that they expected. I mean, we were at that time... If something broke on a placement machine, we put a guy on a plane in Zurich and he flew to San Francisco. Uh, and that's not really the way to have fast response. Right. So, you know, I told Rudy, I've got a list and you're the first guy on it. And he goes, tear up your list. I'll, I'll be back to you within two weeks. And now, he called me back in two weeks and he gave me a choice. He said, look, we'll start the company. He said, we can put up 100% of the money and you can be the vice president. Or you can put up 30% of the money and you can be the president, your choice. And I said, well, I'm getting paid out over the next year and a half from RGB uh, for my stock. If you'll let me pay in over a year and a half, I'll be president and do the investment. And uh, so that's how Zivatech Inc. started. So you've got this track record now of being very savvy with your money rather than, in other words, rather than putting 100% of the cost of running a business out of your pocket by, you know, uh, draining your bank account or charging up your credit cards or getting investors or getting loans, which is impossible to do when you're a young company. Um, you, you were pretty savvy at being able to leverage other people's, and I don't say this in a negative way at all, it's a positive way. You were, you were very savvy in being able to leverage other people's money, other people's terms, um, because ultimately it helped them because they wanted to work with you. They needed you to be successful and you needed them to start the company uh, to fund it. So that was a really good partnership between um, mm -hmm. the people that have the money, but not the ability to sell their product. And the person who has the ability to sell the product that doesn't have all the money required to do so. So it was a really good merger. Well, it, it worked out ultimately because uh, Mr. Warner, who's, who's still, uh, still alive now, he's not, he's in his nineties and uh, lives in a very elegant, uh, uh, what's called an Eldersheim in German, uh, uh, an elder's home, uh, with his wife uh, overlooking the lake of Zurich. Um, we ended up selling Zivatec for about $200 million uh, a few years later. So he certainly did. He did all right by his investment, that's for sure. And obviously, he, I, I'm, I'm assuming he was able to sell it. You guys were able to sell it for $200 million before through whole became, you know, written in the annals of history and, and surface mount made those types of products obsolete? Or did, did Zivatech evolve no, and come up with more relevant products? Zivatech was the surface mount company. Remember, it was the merger. Oh, with that's right. Okay. Rudy actually did a very shrewd thing. He, you know, Ziva in Germany owned half of Zivatech in Switzerland. Okay. And Rudy owned about a third of, of Ziva in Germany. Right. So he traded all his shares in Ziva for all their shares in Ziva Tech. And he ended up owning half of the Swiss company that manufactured the machines. So he did very well for himself. Uh, so Ziva Tech at that time had no more soldering. It was all service mount equipment. Interesting. 
and just as well. Are they still around today? Are they still relevant today? They, they, they were bought by ESIC, okay. uh, the European Semiconductor Equipment Corporation, uh, back in 84, or was it 94? No, it was 84. And uh, no, it was 94. And uh, uh, they got bought by Bessie, you know, Bessie, the Dutch conglomerate. They, they, Bessie bought up a lot of surface mount and related semiconductor equipment companies. And uh, so uh, they bought Datacon, they bought ESSIC, uh, they bought Laurier. Uh, so that, that's, that's now a homogenous group. So the products still exist and the company still exists, but it's part of a big, big conglomeration now. So you sell uh, Ziva and um, what was next? Did I, I know you worked with Juki. Was that the next step or was there something in between? Well, I, I, I ran the U.S. operation for Essex for uh, a couple of years. Um, uh, Wanner retired right after the Essex buyout. Uh, and I, I had signed a contract to work for two years uh, minimum for Essex. And uh, I left on the last day of the second year. Yeah. Uh, I won't go into a lot of details, but the ethics involved in the manage, top management in, in, uh, in Essex was not my style. Right. And uh, uh, in fact, I refused several times to do things that uh, they ordered me to do uh, with regards to bank documentation and so forth, which I wouldn't do. And they actually fired my CFO uh, because he refused also to do it. Um, but he went on and became very successful starting another company. So it, it turned out good for it was him. A blessing. Too. Yeah. Well, it whenever was, we sell our companies, that, that's usually the price we have to pay is we have to stick around for a couple of years. One, so they can do the brain drain and two, they can keep an eye on you to make sure you're not competing, I, I suppose. Yeah. And the reason Essex had bought Civatech at the, at the time was we had invented a machine called the Micron 2. And I don't know if you remember at the time in semiconductor, Intel uh, had made the Pentium processor and it was the most popular thing you know in the world uh, for PCs yeah, and PCs that. were just starting to, to, to get huge growth and the Pentium the first Pentium was wire bond inside it was chip and wire same as all their packages had been the second version was a chip and wire in the third version the frequency was getting so high that the little wire bonds would broadcast signal and they would lose signal integrity between the chip and the board uh, uh, because of the package. So that's when they they changed the inside of the Pentium to flip chip. And they needed a machine to place a flip chip about three quarters of an inch square with 3,500 bumps on the bottom. Three mil pitch, three mil bump, three mil center, you know, rows and columns uh, of three 3,800 and something, I think it was, bumps. And of those bumps, 500 were signal, were signal carrying, and the others they all used as a heat sink to, to suck the heat out of the chip and into the into the package, uh, so it would dissipate the heat. Well, they, there was no machine in the world that could place this flip, this flip chip accurately enough for what they wanted to do, and we made that machine at Civatech. And uh, the funny story was Intel did not want to buy our machine because we were too small a company. We were only $180 million revenue, and that to them was a big risk. They wanted uh, uh, KNS uh, to build it, where they bought most of their wire bonders and die bonders. And KNS had no clue how to make a high accuracy placement machine. They failed in two or three attempts. And we actually uh, got the contract and ended up selling about 200 Micron 2s over the next couple of years to Intel at 500,000 each. And uh, uh, then, of course, when Intel buys you, every semiconductor in the world wants to buy. Right. Stand uh, in line. Yeah, sure. Right. So this is why ESSIC bought us, is because ESSIC was the biggest competitor to K&S for tie bonders and wire bonders. But they had never gotten any Intel business. They had lost always to Intel. And we were in Intel. So they bought our company for, as I said, for about $200 million, uh, just to get into Intel. Well, with my troubles in leaving the company, 
shortly after I left the company, uh, uh, the I got a call from a friend of mine in Japan uh, at Juki. And of course, you know, Civitech had made a, uh, an agreement with Juki years before. The, the whole, a lot of the machines that Zivatech sold were manufactured by Juki in Japan and sold under the Zivatech name. And we built some high-end machines like this Micron 2 I was describing to you. We built that in Switzerland because we could afford to. But the regular day-to-day -day workhorse placement machines right. were, were coming from Juki. Uh, so uh, I got a call saying, uh, would you visit us? So I flew to Japan met with the president of Juki and a couple of people, and they said, look, the business since you left is going down, down, down. Uh, we are not going to renew our contract with, uh, with uh, Essex. It expires next February. And this was in the fall sometime. And uh, we would like you to start a new company, and we would like you to sell the products under the Juki name worldwide. Um, and I said, oh. Uh, and they said, we think it'll take uh, about uh, 15 million in startup money. We'd like, we'll, we'd like to put up half of it and have you raise the other half. Um, so basically, I went back to all the guys that invested in Zivatech uh, and said, I need a little of it back. And uh, that's when we started uh, Juki Automation Systems, Inc. Uh, in the U.S. and, and Juki Automation Systems, uh, uh, GmbH in, in Germany, and uh, uh, went to Essex. Of course, Essex was very displeased with the, uh, when Juki said uh, I didn't, not. Because I didn't they didn't share your enthusiasm, about, right? They didn't care about placement machines at all. They liked the profit from them. But yeah, their business was semiconductor business. They had bought the business for the Micron 2, and the business for the, with the placement machines was a pleasant surprise. Did you create, um, did you create uh, Juki GmbH uh, just to have a European footprint? Is that was that the only reason you weren't manufacturing anything in Germany, right? Under well, Juki. no, we we weren't, but but we saw the EU coming. Okay. We still had a Swiss presence because we had some employees, but we started also a German company because you need to have a company in the EU. And Switzerland has treaties, but they're not fully in the EU. Right. 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 Uh, so it was mostly a tax reason. Notoriously, so, notoriously neutral, Switzerland. So we negotiated with Essex, and we actually bought out the the we bought the business back from them rather than just we could have just started again from scratch, but we took all the employees off their hands. We took the facilities and the leases off their hands. We bought the inventory back, uh, and we paid them a little bit of a bonus for 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 being cooperative and doing it nicely. Sure. So uh, uh, that's how, that's how Chuki, I got back into, into, uh, into the placement business uh, after the, after the Essex uh, experience. What I find and, very interesting is that there's a, there's a strong takeaway, which I'm sure the fact has not been lost on you. You are the common thread between all these companies. All these companies touched each other in one way or another through partnerships or, or, or private label arrangements. You were one of the players in you know, RGB with your partner. And when, that, when you left that, your principal said, no, we want to continue working with Bob. So you set up uh, the, the, another company. And then uh, when that got sold off, uh, another company that you had done work for indirectly from Zivatech, which is Juki's um, you know, private label deal, um, they tapped you. So it, there's a common denominator or you're in each of these three companies, and and well, a little, a little bit. But look, if if Essex had done, if if they put the effort and they put the resources into continuing to promote the placement business and grow the business, because certainly the market was still growing, uh, then it would never have happened. There would have been no reason to do it. Uh, you know, I was yeah. They 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 called on me, but the reason they called on me was that the business was going in reverse. It was starting to to recede and to fail. And uh, uh, they wanted to get it back to where it had been before and beyond. And so that's 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 why they called on me. Uh, and the Essex guys, I mean, they, they the, the management of the company was in a mess. I was in what was called a management council for two years, which was supposedly the top five guys under the CEO and the CFO. 
uh, and we were supposed to run the day-to-day -day business, and I had to fly to Switzerland every month for two days of meetings, right? Uh, and I can tell you, this group of five people, which were bright people, um, we had the power of nothing. I mean, we were just a rubber stamp. Uh, the, the, the whole management of the, of the place was so disjointed that, that uh, it, I could see that they would end up selling out to somebody, and they ended up selling out to Bessie a couple years after I left. Yeah, you saw that. You saw the writing on the wall. Uh, so you, you managed, I, I suppose, um, to raise the $7 million that Juki you know, wanted to split with you, right? So yes. you raised your seven. They came up with their uh, half, or slightly yep. more than half. And, and you raised that through asking people to kind of claw back, the, you know, their, their, uh, just their friends profits. that had made money out of the original, uh, Zivatech, uh, sale to Essex. Right. Uh, Rudy Warner being one, of course he was retired, but he still had, uh, plenty of, uh, money. And, uh, and then, uh, after three years of working together with the shareholders and Juki, uh, Juki, uh, made us an offer to buy us all out of course, at a, at a decent, uh, fair profit. And so all those people got their money back again with a nice increase uh, uh, the second time. So, uh, and then Juki, as it does today, owns 100%. And all the years you were um, associated with Juki was only a short time of that where you and the other shareholders owned it? And did Juki very quickly three years, buy three, it back? Three years. Three years. Three years. You, you had equity yeah. for three years uh and yeah and then they asked to buy it back and uh, i was the negotiator for the independent shareholders and uh rick nagashima who was my boss in japan uh who was the president of the surfside division was the negotiator for on behalf of the of the juki management and, and we came very quickly to a very fair uh arrangement but you and you stayed with juki you were you yes. were pretty much juki you were juki <laughs> For, the, for, well, for all intents in and purposes. The, in the United States. Uh, uh, and, you know, uh, I retired uh, from Juki uh, two, and a, two and a half years ago. Right. Uh, turned over my, my CEO's position to Bill Astle, who's doing a, a great job running Juki Automation Systems now. Uh, but I also resigned my position in Japan because uh, after the, after the uh, starting the, the new Juki Automation Systems in the U.S., uh, they asked me to be a, uh, uh, a corporate officer of the Juki Corporation in Japan and to be on their, on their corporate management uh, team. And so I was actually, I had two jobs. I, I had a job in Tokyo and a job in, in the U.S. Uh, and that went for about seven, seven years, eight years. And I resigned that the same time I resigned from, retired from uh, Juki here. Is how common is it for a, a traditional Japanese company to um, have senior level management not Japanese? I know Nissan tried that, and that didn't yeah. go too well when 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 the, the head of uh, Nissan got arrested for whatever whatever happened. But um, yeah, I, I view maybe this is just a stereotype. Maybe it's just maybe it used to be accurate and it's not now. But I I my view of Japan is that it's very nationalistic and I don't mean that in a negative way that, you know, Japan is a very inward country. Right. And, um, okay. once you're out of Tokyo, very little English is spoken. Uh, it's, it's, a well, you know, uh, uh, to answer your question so far in Juki's history, I'm the only one, I'm the only non Japanese that has been a corporate officer, but, uh, I think there will be another one. Uh, it may come from the sewing machine division, uh, but you have to realize Juki Corporation has about 7,000 employees worldwide. More than half of them are not Japanese. Right. right? But in senior management, yeah, though, and that's a senior companies. So they need to. And I, I came up when I was there. Uh, I spent about $300 of, uh, or, or at that time, of my own money. And I bought a series of little white buttons with the Juki uh, logo saying, one Juki. Because we had a lot of companies and subsidiaries around the world, and we had a lot of employees. We had South American employees, North American employees, European employees, African employees, uh, many other countries in Asia. 
Uh, but we were all part of one company, and I wanted to get the point across to some of these people that were a little bit uh, not just nationalistic, but also a little bit sons of the sun, uh, you know, a little World War II uh, type uh, remembrance right. that, hey, uh, we're not Japanese. We're an international company, and we're a team. And um, the president, fortunately, liked my buttons and ordered everybody in the company to wear one. So I distributed about 7,000 of those uh, buttons to all the uh, guys worldwide. Um, and, you know, what I tried to do when I was in the Japanese management is if you design a machine just for Japan, for the Japanese market, you will not be successful to sell it in the United States. You will not be successful to sell it in Europe. You will not be successful to sell it to half the places in China. Why? Board size. Japanese board size is 250 by 330 millimeters. That's the standard size. It takes an act of God to make something bigger than that. If you need more space, you just have two boards, right? In America, we've got boards that are 24 by you know 30. I mean, these monstrosities. Uh, so if you made machines just for the Japanese board size, good luck. You can sell them to Japanese companies all day long, but you can't sell them in America. That reminds so, me of the U.S. auto industry. In the early days of them trying to sell to Japan, um, yeah. they weren't committed fully to sell to Japan, so they were not building right-hand drive cars as Japan uses. They were, they were saying, well, if you want to buy our cars, you, know, you buy an American-style car, left-hand drive, which doesn't do well when yeah. in their environment. Um, and that's an example of not you know, of being homegrown centric and not adapting to the, to the um, market. How, how much did they learn from you? How much did Juki, a Japanese well, company, hopefully, multinational, hopefully, obviously. Quite, hopefully quite a bit. Uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I viewed my job as to bring the demands of my market uh, and also the European, European market, because uh, in the latter part of my career, I managed the European operation as well as the American operation. Uh, it was my job to bring the demands of that market to Japan and make sure that when we design new products, that that market's demands were included. And uh, I took that very seriously, because if I didn't, uh, we'd have a lot of trouble selling a lot of whatever was made. So it was uh, absolutely essential that that be done. Now, obviously, they knew you, or, or at least when, when Juki tapped you on the shoulder and said, you know, we want you to come work with us, they knew who you were. Probably they knew, certainly, what you're capable of doing for products. Um, how much of Bob Black did they have to get used to from a personality standpoint? You are a unique person. We all have our unique personalities. And I mean that as a compliment. I mean, you, when you are sitting at a table of you know 10 or 20 people you know where the conversation is going to start you know who's going to dominate the conversation you know who everyone's going to be glued to it's bob black right it, it's always been that no, way not in and, Japan. Uh, and this was a, this was maybe the most difficult thing i had to learn in my career uh in japan raising your voice is a sign of weakness uh you know getting excited is a sign of weakness you can't control yourself you don't have the discipline to control yourself. So when I first went over there, I was very ineffective because I made a lot of noise, but nobody listened to a thing I said. And I had to really teach myself to be stone-faced and to sit there and not react, right? And to make my points logically and in, in consecutive order. And I got really good at it. I could out Japanese some of the Japanese uh, <laughs> occasionally. But that's absolutely necessary because in Japanese culture, especially in business culture, uh, emotion or, or anger is a sign of weakness and a sign of in, incapability to do a, a, a serious job. And so, yeah, I had to really change a lot the more I got involved in the Japanese business. And it was good for me because that, uh, we, we, we get too excited in America about a lot of things anyway. That, oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. We don't even need to go down that road, but we could have a whole conversation about that. I totally agree. Um, how much uh, do you think you had an effect on changing them, the, the Japanese management structure? 
Now, you changed. You, you understood what was respected, what was not respected. You mm. understood how they interpret your actions. How, did you have an effect on them equal to that, where they oh, better understood I, I, the American market? I hope I, I think so. I mean, even though I'm retired, uh, I still am occasionally asked for my opinion on, on things and, and so forth. And I try to visit there once a year. I've missed the last year, of course, because of COVID, and they're yeah. still having their COVID difficulties. But I hope to go again next year, uh, you know, God willing. And, uh, and I always have a meeting with the president and the top two or three guys. And uh, uh, the last time I was there, they asked me a lot about my new project, you know, with Asegi. And uh, uh, four weeks later, they ended up announcing they were buying 49% of Asegi. Uh, in Italy. So, uh, so I, I figured why they gave me such a nice lunch, they were picking my brain as to what to do. So in that respect, since I'm, you know, my, my part-time job now is, is the North American sales manager for Asegi Automation SRL, which is a company located just outside Venice in Italy. And it's the largest manufacturer of component storage systems. Uh, for the surface mount market worldwide. Are we talking about these and, towers, these giant towers yes. that we see? Yeah, the walls? Exactly. And, uh, uh, you know, I found that business while I was still president at, uh, at uh, Chuki Automation Systems uh, before my retirement. It was about six, six, seven years ago. And it's a funny story. It shows how providence uh, sometimes happens because uh, I had a customer in Connecticut uh, that had a lot of MyData towers. And MyData was the first company to introduce story, you know, component storage towers in the market to their credit. But those towers weren't made by MyData at that time. They were made by a company in Munich called Royatel. And Royatel was a branch off. Remember Royonic, the old uh, sure. light, component, light beams? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fo fo follow the dot, yeah. yeah follow the dot. Uh, those guys. And, and they were making the, that tower for... Uh, uh, for our, uh, uh, my chronic uh, now, uh, my data then. And uh, they were also selling it to a, to a Swiss company called SM Tech, which was, as you know, makes small placement machines and printers and other things in, in Switzerland. Um, so this guy in Connecticut called me and said he'd had a big fight with my data and he wouldn't buy anything from my data anymore. And he said, Bob, I need five more towers. I want you to find me five more towers. So I called the president of SM Tech, who I knew pretty well, and said, can you sell me five of your towers? And he goes, yeah. So we worked out a price, and I sent him a purchase order. And three weeks later, he called me, and he said, Bob, I'm sorry, but I won't be able to deliver those towers. I said, why not? And he said, I didn't realize that my uh, – that." Uh, that my data has a contract with Rayotel that they're allowed to sell to me because I predate their business, but I'm not allowed to sell them to any third-party competitor and they won't ship them to me. And I said, oh, go. So here I had a, an order from this customer for towers and I had no towers. So I called uh, Jörg Schupach. But knowing you, that's not going to stop you, right? You're, you're going to find no, I, a way, right? I called uh, Schupach, who was the president of, Z of, Z of uh, Juki Automation Systems in, in Switzerland. And I said, weren't you telling me you saw a company that was making towers at a trade show? Didn't you mention that to me a few months ago? And he says, oh, yeah, Italian guys. And I said, I need to get an appointment with them. And so he called me back and said, we could, the guy will meet us in Lugano next Thursday. So I flew over to Switzerland, and, and Schupach and I took the train down to Lugano, which is right on the Italian border. And Matteo Padawan, who the, was the uh, president of uh, Esagi, drove up in his car, and we met in the cafe of the casino in Lugano. And uh, three hours later, we shook hands on a distribution deal for the United States and, uh, and Switzerland and Germany uh, for the storage towers. And I went back, and then I just had to convince the customer in Connecticut I had a better tower for him, and I had the ability to hook up and communicate with my data uh, towers and machines, so it would be like one homogenous uh, deal. And that's how we got started in business with Essegi. Maybe the best, I should thank the guy in Connecticut uh, profusely, because maybe the best business decision I will have made uh, yet. Uh, 
Last year, the storage towers were the only product that Chuki sold more of than they did in 2019 in the middle of pandemic year. The business grew substantially. This year, it's exploding. And uh, we've started to manufacture the products now in Japan, in addition to in Italy. The Italian factory is expanding like crazy. And our problem right now, to be honest, is to keep up with the demand. Well, that's a good problem to have. During your um, tours of duty, your various tours of duty, RGB, Ziva, Ziva Tech, uh, Juki, the latest, uh, your Italian friends, um, has there ever been a time when you thought, this is it, we're not going to make it? Have you ever been on the edge or close to the edge and faced the prospect of a failure? Only at the very beginning. Um, you know, Bobby Guerin did not take a salary. His wife was principal of the school. I took $500 a month when I started in 1975 uh, with RGB, and that wasn't a lot of money even back then. Uh, there were there were months I had to wait a week to take the $500 because we didn't have enough money in the checking account to pay me uh, going on. And there were several times during those first two years when it was just him and me. Uh, he would go out and sell. I would do the paperwork during the day. And then at night we would do something like stuff tool cases or prepare shipments or whatever. We worked probably average 14, 15 hour days. Uh, in those times, but I was young, so uh, I could uh, I could stand it better. So yes, in those times, uh, there was a lot of doubt whether we'd make it. Uh, but fortunately, Ziva came along with the drag soldering machine, and somebody invented multi-layer boards. And never again after that have I been in a position financially where I had to worry about the company's survival. So that's that's very good, and that's very uncommon. Usually. Most companies go through ebbs and flows throughout the entire lifespan of the company where they get close to the edge many times, but you're very fortunate to have that in the early days. What, you ever seen those memes where uh, there's a picture of this is what I do for a living, this is what my friends think I do, this is what my parents think I do, this is what you know, society thinks I do. What, what are, do you think are some of the misconceptions about being an entrepreneur, being self-employed, you know, working for yourself uh, versus the reality of working for yourself? Uh, I don't think people, I, I think people concentrate on the money and the success and they don't concentrate on what it takes to get there. Um, you know, it, it, it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of mental fortitude, uh, as you know, in starting a company to run a company. Uh, when you run a company, you have many responsibilities, but the primary one is to the people that work for you. Uh, you've got to see that they're paid every week. You've got to see that their health insurance coverage is proper. You've got to see that their working conditions are decent. Uh, and uh, I always viewed any failure in that area as a personal failure, uh, you know, because it, as the head of the company, it was my responsibility to see that people are taken care of properly and that people are paid properly uh, and so forth. And that puts a, a strain on you especially during uh, difficult times or recessions or so forth. Um, I was very fortunate to not have to lay people off. Um, we had a very bad recession in the early 2000s, I'm sure you remember. Uh, Japan ordered me to cut 15% of payroll. Um, and they wanted the list of people I was cutting uh, by that Friday. Uh, I held a meeting of the company uh, in those days, conference call to the California office. I was in the North Carolina office. And I told the people, uh, you know, things are bad. We've got a cut, but rather than lay people off, I'm cutting all your salaries 10%. I'm cutting my salary 35%. The management will take a 25% cut. And we'll all work here together. And when things get better, we'll restore uh, the cuts. But that's the way we'll do it. And I didn't get a single objection. Um, right. When the choice is nothing or 85% of your salary or 90% of your salary, you know, certainly 90% sounds good. The more interesting reaction to that was when I went to Japan uh, because I'd sent them a message on Friday saying the payroll is being cut by this amount, but I didn't list any people or whatever else. And I didn't tell them what I'd done. And when I got there, the, you had to make a presentation 
for your company in front of the management group. So I made a presentation, and at the end, the first question from the CFO of the corporation was, uh, how many people did you cut? I said, I didn't cut anybody. I said, I told them their salaries were reduced 10%. I took a 35% reduction. My top managers took a 25% reduction. And we kept all the people because we're going to need them when this uh, recession is over. And the the president of the corporation at that time, Nakamura, was an ex-banker from, uh, from uh, one of the biggest banks in Tokyo. Um, started really lecturing people in Japanese. And I didn't have my translation bud in because I was up making the presentation. So when I got back, I asked the translator, I said, what did he say? And he said, why didn't any of you people think of that? Why does it take an American to show us how to do it properly? Why didn't we ask people to take a cut instead of laying people off and having to hire new people later? And he was actually mad that nobody else had done this. But of course, he hadn't thought of the idea either. So it ended up being a, a, a plus on the Japan side. Uh, rather than rather than minus. Yeah, well, one thing they learned from you. Uh, what advice would you give? Well, before we go there, I think uh, I want to ask you this question. I, I kind of know the answer, if I'm right. Tell me at, at the height of your travel, you you were you are a you were the ultimate road warrior for a lot of years. I mean, I always thought I traveled well, a lot, and well, you not, put me to shame. I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the last year we're all homebodies. Yeah, I, I get that. But um, during your, the heyday of your travel, tell my audience, how many days a year were you on the road? I was, uh, I was 23 to 24 days a month on the road. Yeah, yeah. So home weekends, basically. Yeah, maybe not even full uh, weekends. No, home maybe two weekends a month. Wow. And that went on for how long? How many years on average? On average? probably 25 years. Yeah. A lot of people think, you know, you're an entrepreneur, I'm an entrepreneur. We, we tend to know other entrepreneurs because we all like to hang out and compare horror stories together. And most of our friends are tired of hearing our stories, but we like to talk to each other. Um, it, 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 it's interesting how uh, many people think, I asked you, you know, what are the, what's the reality versus the perception of owning your own business? Uh, most people think that it's, it's writing your own paycheck and taking time off and you know, pushing buttons and telling people what to do. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is how much work there is, whether it's mental, physical, combination, uh, travel. You know, that's a huge commitment. And I don't think your company would have been successful at all were it not for Bob Black on the road 27 days a month uh, and, and putting his stamp, putting your stamp on... Um, the country uh, on behalf of Juki, on behalf of ZivaTech, on behalf of Ziva, on behalf of RGB. I think, I think that um, that is your uh, major, major contribution to the success of your companies is the fact that you were willing to get out there and, you know, kiss the baby, shake the hands, shake the trees, yeah. motivate the reps, make deals, negotiate all the things that, that a business owner might, farm out, you know, might, might delegate. You were the person on the road. You were Juki. You were Ziva. Uh, and it didn't really matter where they were made or, you know, uh, or what, even what country they were made or who made them or what country was behind it. Um, my interpretation was that if I was going to buy a Juki machine, I was going to call Bob Black, you know, even though you had lots of employees. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I, I, I was maybe a, uh, the face of the company in a lot of cases, but we had an excellent team of people and we, we, we had an excellent group of reps and we kept our reps over long periods of time. And the reason was that, you know, RGB, one of my jobs was we were a rep, right? We were a rep for, for, for Ziva. We were a rep for several other equipment companies. So I had experienced the treatment that sometimes reps get. And so the reps with, with, with Juki always knew, they would be paid on time. They would be paid the proper amount according to their contract. Now, of course, I never met a rep who didn't want to negotiate more in the contract. Of course. Right? But with us, they never had to worry about getting their money or being treated unfairly or being cheated out of money 
or whatever else. And uh, also, we were famed for having the best sales meetings in the industry. And the way to have the best sales meeting in the industry is to feed the people excellently, right? Let them drink, uh, 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 well, not as much as they want, but uh, uh, copious amounts, uh, and have succinct, valuable presentations that actually educated them on how to sell things and made help them make more money. And so, uh, you know, we had reps approaching us all the time that wanted to join uh, the business, but we, we changed very few reps because uh, we were usually able to get the top rep in each territory and uh, we're usually able to keep them. At this very moment, as we wrap up, we're starting to run out of time, but as a, at this very moment, someone in my audience is considering starting a company. Maybe the pandemic tossed them out of a job. Maybe they haven't, you know, maybe their company's not around anymore, whatever. Maybe there's a young person just graduated college who has an idea that's going to be the next big thing in, in that person's mind. What advice would you give to um, a budding entrepreneur, whether they're older or wiser, whether they're younger and more naive, um, based on your experience? What, what, what are the, you know, maybe one top two, three takeaways? Top, top thing. Make sure what you want to do is has a chance to be successful. Investigate the market. Make sure people see it the same way you do. I've met so many people that are absolutely convinced that what, they, what they've got is the greatest thing in the world, but when they go and try to share it with the people they want to sell it to, they don't necessarily share the same opinion. So before you put all the effort in, make sure there's a market there. Do some test marketing, you know, go out, talk to people in the industry, uh, and when you get enthusiastic reactions, you'll know you're on the right track. Uh, second, don't kid yourself. My my partner and boss for years, Rudy Warner, uh, who I should have said earlier, uh, I couldn't have asked for a better mentor or a better person in the industry. That Rudy Warner is uh, is is not only smart; he's one of the most honest men I ever knew. You could trust him with your last dollar and never worry a minute about it. Uh, and I was blessed, uh, you know, frankly, to have a guy like that to work with. Um, but before you put all your hard-earned money and in, in work into it, don't have any illusions, right? Uh, Rudy used to say, if you go to a startup and there's all Mercedes and BMWs in the parking lot, turn around and go away because they're going out of business. Uh, he says, you got to earn your way along. And you can have all those nice things after you can pay for them without stress or without a big uh, loan uh, to uh, finance. So, uh, you know, be, and be prepared to work hard. There's no substitute for hard work, your personal hard work and engagement to getting in. If you're going into business to have your own business, think you're going on vacation all the time. Uh, listen, it's not like that. Uh, taking vacations is important to get away from the stress and so forth. But uh, work is, at the beginning, is more important. And... So those are the three things I'd, I'd advise somebody who wants to start a company today. Excellent. Well, that is that is very good advice. Um, probably advice I wish I'd heard. You know, I, I think I was also Pollyannish. I, I like to call myself the reluctant entrepreneur. I didn't, I didn't grow up thinking I want to work for myself. It's just like you. Just uh, things came along, right? It's providence. It's happenstance. It's fate. It's it's God. It's whatever whatever we want to want to put on it. Uh, we find ourselves in a situation where we end up working for ourselves. Um, and, uh, you know, you learn the hard way. I think I said this on another episode, but I think one of the uh, greatest attributes of a particularly a young entrepreneur is naivety. We don't know what we don't know. We don't know this can't be done. You know, we yeah. don't know that it's going to take way more money than we'll ever have the ability to, to, to uh, save ourselves. And the fact that we don't know that, you know, allows us to, to try it. And, because, and I think if we knew, and I've said this on the show before, uh, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics says 75% of all new business startups are completely gone within 10 years. Half of them are gone within five years. You know, those are terrible odds. And I think, thank God I didn't know those odds because yeah. I, I may not have tried it. I was talking to someone yesterday and I said, you know, if you – if you realized the water was cold and deep, would you have jumped? <laughs> and he said, no, I thought it was warm and shallow, you know, but uh, once you jump, you're committed and then you either drown or you swim. And, yeah. and you know, it's probably a suitable metaphor for business. It's, 
maybe it's best we don't know everything. Let let the universe, let history, let the business gods up there uh, educate us when the time is right. And yeah, you know, yeah, and I'd say me. if you wanted to take business down to a you know one sentence, business is the evaluation and management of risk. Yes, and I'm so happy you said that because I was I, I used to speak to colleges about entrepreneurship and and I have you know the the I forget all ten now but you know the ten attributes of a young entrepreneur and one of them is um, you know passion and uh, ego and naivety and a little arrogance and allows me assessment of risk <laughs> that seems to be the hallmarks not necessarily beneficial but the hallmarks of of new entrepreneurs. And, uh, and you know, maybe that's good. Like we said before, maybe not understanding the full potential of the risk is what allowed us to make those silly decisions to start against all odds. But certainly we have to acquire those skills. We have to change out the ego, the arrogance, the naivety, the poor assessment of risk. And we need to substitute those for more suitable skills to actually grow and sustain a company. Uh, and that's where I think a lot of businesses fail. People come into business with those uh, cowboy-esque, you know, uh, attributes of I can never fail. I'm smarter than the rest of the world. My idea is better than any other idea out there. And, and, and they don't shift those ideas uh, and those, and those uh, attributes to something more suitable to grow a business and, and keep it in business. And that's where I think most businesses fail. You clearly have had the ability from day one to shift your skills uh, from gas station attendant and restaurant worker to um, you know, to a, an entrepreneur, a very successful entrepreneur and, and a distributor of equipment uh, throughout the electronic well, and space. And I add one more thing. I mean, uh, everybody has his own opinion, but also I've been uh, greatly blessed. Uh, you know, God's given me a lot of opportunities and he's put me in position to take advantage of them. And I don't forget that for a minute. Uh, if I thought it was all me, I'd get too puffed up. Well, I was going to ask you, but the question I always end with is uh, in percentage terms, percent over percent, uh, how much of your success do you attribute to Bob Black? How much do you uh, attribute to luck? And in, in this case, let's substitute luck with For the uh, divine uh, providence, divine providence, uh, whatever uh, works. Uh, how much of it, is, you know, in a percentage term, how much of it is you? How I'd much say of it is 50, something else? 50. I'd say 50-50. I, I put in a lot of hard work, but uh, I, I was given a lot of opportunities. And also, I met a lot of people along the way, Rudy Warner being the first of them. But, you know, my first partner, Bobby Guerin, I learned a lot from him, uh, especially on on, uh, on the law of supply and demand. Uh, you know, I was a naive guy, and uh, uh, he, 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 he came, came up from the streets selling out on the out on the on the road and so uh, he, he he abused me of a lot of those fantasies i had about business uh, real quick and uh you know also my my colleagues in japan uh, uh, you know i've i've met a lot of good people over there and i would say you know it's changing unfortunately in japan too but long past time you couldn't do it here you could still do business in japan on a handshake uh, and a guy would cut his hand off before he'd break his word. And, you know, uh, that was impressive to see a lot of that uh, as well. So I've had a lot of help along the way. And, uh, and uh, uh, you know, I, I have to remember that. Well, thank you, Bob, for being my guest. Thank you for helping me along the way, just watching what you've done, watching the commitment you've made to our industry, um, 27 days a month traveling. You know, I remember hearing that and instantly putting my travel uh, commitment into perspective. <laughs> you know, I thought I was really paying, taking one for the team, and I'm like, no, not even close. So, um, you know, you've certainly uh, made an impact on me watching your success and, and uh, your amount of confidence watching people's heads turn towards you when you're speaking because they're interested in what you have to say is, is a... It's an attribute. It's a skill. I'm not sure if it's learnable, but um, but certainly you, you do possess that. And I've always enjoyed sitting back and listening. And I'm normally a talker, and I you know I, I have certainly enjoyed the art of listening to your stories. And uh, most of them, I believe. My, my one my one weakness. I need to listen more. Still, well, 
I'm told that all the time, but um, you got me to listen. Yeah. Well, Bob, thank you so much for being my guest. Uh, Continued success, uh, particularly with your new project. And um, I'll look forward to hearing what's going on in your world again. Take care. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining me on this episode of the Concept to Creation podcast. And a special thanks to my guest, Bob Black. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. The Concept to Creation podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many, many others. A video version of this podcast is available on the Concept to Creation YouTube channel. If you're watching this on YouTube, be sure to subscribe and click on the bell icon to be notified when new episodes are available. We release new episodes on the first and third Tuesday of each month. Thanks for your feedback. Please keep it coming. Email me at mike at mikeconrad.com. That's Conrad with a K. Thanks again for listening or watching. Stay safe, stay healthy, and of course, stay happy. And I'll see you again very soon. Free and I was meant to be free. Meant to be free.